And we're back. We're back. Hi, everyone. It is uh, the 3rd of August, 2023. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 166 of my live chat. Hope you're doing well. Been a couple of weeks. Uh, been a couple of weeks. A couple of very busy, long weeks. But here we are. We're finally back. We got an episode today. So what's on the docket? I think the Diaz and Jake Paul presser. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention. Boy, it's been uh, quite, the, quite the show. Quite the show. Security, fist fighting, um, on stage, lots of uh, slurs being tossed about in a n- number of different directions. It's been quite, quite, quite the uh, carnival. Um, but in any case, we can talk about the fight. If you want to get to the fight, we can talk about UFC Nashville, which is this weekend, uh, which of course was going to be Corey Sandhagen, supposed to be Umar Nurmagomedov, but instead we're going to get Rob Font. Still a very good fight. Still a very good fight. And then, of course, we also have um, this weekend as well. What else am I forgetting? There's PFL. There's one. There's a fair amount going on. We're in the shadow of Spence Crawford. There's a lot going on. So, um, hey, subscribe to participate. I got a poll up right now seeing who you guys think is going to win the Nate Diaz slash Jake Paul fight. Uh, Let me know. We'll get to those results at the end of the program. We'll go for about an hour on the free questions. If you have any uh, paid ones, we'll get to those. You are certainly under no obligation to offer a dime up. If you want to get this whole thing for free, that's cool too. I'm just glad you're here. But if you want to, that is an option for you as well. And uh, last but not least, hey, subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. It's free. So would be very kind if you did. All right. With that in mind, let's, um, let's get this party started, shall we? All right, and we're back. Um, sorry I couldn't do it last week, man. Last week was a long week, a lot of travel. Uh, <sighs> I think I aged 10 years last week, man. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm like so glad I had the opportunity to do all that stuff, to be very clear. Like doing national television for two hours was great. Doing the weigh-ins was great. Doing the prelims and then the post-fight show, all of that was like, It was such a blessing. It was such a blessing, but it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot, a lot of work. And then on top of it to try and keep up and then offer like a modicum of like halfway respectable coverage for UFC 291. Tough task. I mean, it always sounds on paper so nice when you have like, oh my God, this combat sports weekend, you know, on Saturday we got this huge fight and then this huge fight and then a different event, this huge fight. It always sounds good on paper. And then when you actually get there, you're like, eh, I'd rather it was spaced out. So glad we got the fights. All of them seem to deliver in most of the ways, but nevertheless would have preferred, uh, not, not, it wasn't quite as intense as it ended up being. But, um, oh, and lastly, thanks to everyone who caught the dissected I did over on the Morning Combat channel for Spence Crawford. It kind of, it surged when I posted it and then kind of died. And then yesterday surged again. It got some renewed life. So I was really happy to see that. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for everyone who, who took the time to watch. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being here. All right, with that out of the way, let's get this party started if we can. Uh, oops. What am I doing here? Hold on. Hold on here. Let's do this. Uh, okay, add to stream. I don't know why that... There we go. I don't know why that wasn't showing up. That's kind of weird. All right, that's a little bizarre. But here we are. Okay. Uh, this person asks, Luke, with reference to Crowford uh, victory, did you watch any other combat sport athlete who leveled up during the biggest fight of their career? Well, let me just tell you, I don't think... 
I said this on that night and I have thought about it. I was like, did I speak too soon? You know, is that really true? I had said whatever I had personally witnessed. Now, of course, not anything that um, you could, you know, some old Salvador Sanchez footage or Muhammad Ali footage or something. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking anything I lived through that I watched in real time, that what Bud Crawford did on Saturday is the most incredible thing I've ever seen a combat sports athlete do under those sort of strict considerations. And I stand by that. I really do. I completely stand by that. Dude, I haven't, I haven't been able to stop thinking about that fight. I've watched it. (laughs) I don't know, 49 times, but I've watched it a lot. I've watched it a lot. And it's still fresh and interesting every time. It dude, like I just never I said this on the post fight show, and if you guys heard it or not, I had said you ever you guys have ever seen these videos where you have like you know the three tenors or even just Pavarotti who is singing some kind of operatic tune. And there's people in the audience who were crying watching it, you know, moved to tears. And you always for me, I always understood it. I understood that he is singing so beautifully that the and these people find it so moving that they are brought to tears. Like I could rationalize it, but I'd never felt that myself. And I didn't I didn't break down in tears like in that way, but that's the closest I've ever gotten. And you know, there's a lot of people who had jokes about it. I can't do anything about it. I'm not trying to justify my life to anyone. They don't if either they f- understand it or they don't in this particular uh issue. But Dude, I didn't think fighting could move me that way anymore. I didn't think it could. I thought like I thought I was done feeling that way about it. And it did. And I couldn't believe it. And um I said it on Saturday night to watch somebody so good at what they do, so good at what they do, get tasked with the biggest responsibility that they had and overcome it with all of their brilliance in truly special fashion. I, 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 it it was, I, I found it moving. I'd be, I'd just be, I I would be lying if I said anything else to you. I found it moving. And, um, I felt so such gratitude to be there. A lot of times, man, I go to these fights and, you know, you could take it or leave it being there. It may or may not add something to you. You know, you're like, I'm glad I'm here for like professional reasons. And I got to cover this fight and, Stuff like that, but like, what did being there for the fight really do for you? Not all that much, dude. I don't, I don't know if anyone is ever going to top this for me, and other people will feel differently about that, and that's okay. I can only tell you how I feel. So, anything I'm about to say to answer this question, this is a long-winded way of answering this question. Nothing will really compare to me to this, but people have brought this up to me as like a something that you is you know a rough kind of equivalent, not the same, not the same, but you know it felt pretty similar-ish was when Connor at UFC 205 beat Eddie Alvarez, right? Where you thought, okay, right? Connor has gotten some there there was there were some arguments at that time that Connor had not faced a bevy of the division's best wrestlers on route to this title opportunity. Um and in fact at 155 not at all, but like just in general, like <clears throat> through that point, how many wrestlers had he faced? Chad Mendez was the big one. And it was on short notice, and he got taken down and controlled. We all we later found out he had a knee issue, but like it wasn't like he had to go through Frankie Edgar. There was a lot of people who thought he should have gone through Frankie Edgar, and he didn't, among some other guys. And so you thought, okay, well, Eddie Alvarez isn't the wrestler that those guys are, but he is extremely well-rounded, right? I mean, he is a good striker. He is a good wrestler. He does have some submissions when he wants, but you know, in general, 
um, you know, he's not going to be like submitted very easily himself, right? Like it's a sturdy part of his game insofar as it needs to be in a supporting role. He's battle tested to the nth degree. You know what I mean? Like we know he like, what's it like when he gets hurt and has to rally back? We've seen it. You know, you, you just felt like Connor is fighting a guy who, um, Connor's fighting a guy in that moment before we all knew the results of like any question you might have about Connor. We've already had these questions about Eddie and we've already gotten great answers to him. You know, no one's had a, no one has a perfect score in that regard, but you got a lot. And then Connor went in there and just fucking mopped him up, you know, like, like he ma made, made this guy who was proven, made this guy who was battle tested and, and had great nights after that, by the way, but up to that point, you just knew was like a trusted brand in quality. I mean, that's what Eddie Alvarez really represented. Proven quality. Proven quality against the elite. Proven. Proven. And Connor just destroyed him. Like it was like his easiest fight almost. Connor looked borderline flawless. And that was the point. Again, if you had told me, hey, Connor's got a big punch, he's gonna win, I'd be like, okay, I can. I can see that, right? Connor's Connor's strong and that power's going to translate. Okay, fine. But if you had told me that he was just going to make Eddie look the way in which he made Eddie look, I, I would have had a hard time believing that. That's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. Now, that doesn't carry the same level of like historic implications for what I think Crawford did on Saturday night, but it's the same thing. 145 going up, 155, there's some echoes. There's some similarity there. You know, you thought could go either way, toughest test, and he just blows, one guy blows the other way. So th there are some similarities there. They don't mean the same thing in terms of the depth of quality, uh, or I should say the historic implications won. And also, like, again, this is the third division for Crawford in which he is collecting a belt. Um, he, You know, uh, second one he unified. This is a much more, I think, esteemed and, and difficult task. Nevertheless, there are some similarities between them and that one stood out pretty strongly to me i need to lock my door because the tubester is home and you just know what that means all right uh luke could you talk about the standard ufc broadcast more specifically who is who on the three-man team and what their roles and respective competencies are and who in your opinion is the best in the business for each of those roles well it's pretty simple they like a three-man booth they used to do a two-man booth they like a three-man booth so john dude i i said this before and people took issue with it on twitter because i guess people are going to disagree with everything on one level or, or another but let me just tell you something having been in a few different places and seen broadcasting teams and looking around i can't believe people disagree with this but they're going to find any reason to do so Dude, when you have as just your play-by-play -play stable, right? These are the guys you can go to for play-by-play. -play. You've got John Anik, you've got Brendan Fitzgerald, you've got John Gooden, and you've even got Dan Helly, you know, getting warmed up in the bullpen. I mean, that is such an absurd level of broadcasting quality. Now, some people are going to say, this guy's too vanilla. This guy does something else I don't like. I'm not presenting them to you to be perfect broadcasters. But let me just assure you, as someone who's done a little bit of that, not the play-by-play -play side, but you know, some commentary, some on-camera work, guys, John Anik is very good at his job. Brendan Fitzgerald is very good at his job. Dan Helley has certainly done a lot of things in other sports. I think his MMA resume is being built, but certainly John Gooden, very good at his job. Like, it's just, it's just ridiculous for people to say like, oh, I don't, you know, you can like them, I suppose, but saying that they're not talented broadcasters is just no one who works in broadcasting 
no one who works in broadcasting would agree with you. Like just nobody. Uh, okay, so that's the first thing I'd say. Those are the play-by-play guys. Those are the guys who have to tee up the other commentators. They have to throw to the announcer. They have to get a segments thrown to them. They have to walk you through the ads. They are the conductor of everything. They're the one. I mean, the producer's really the conductor, but uh, in terms of the on-air guy who is making sure they get from segment to segment, fight to fight, ad to ad, pre-roll package to pre-roll package, they're the one doing that work. Then you have the color commentary. This is typically reserved for a former fighter. This would be Dominic Cruz. This would be Daniel Cormier. This would be, you name anyone in that role. Now, Laura Senko has moved into that role, even though she never fought in UFC, but of course we know she fought in Invicta and some, has a, some other uh, uh, aspects to her combat sports resume. She fills into that role. There's other ones as well, as you can point to. Michael Bisping does that role as well. And you can like who you like, Paul Felder. Um, you know, my personal opinion is every guy has certain strengths. I think Dom has some assessment for like the strategic strength, the strategic vision that fighters might have and why that's important. I think Cormier typically excels in the wrestling. Michael Bisping, I think, tends to get more into the urgency of matters, sort of understanding how to work through a round. Paul Felder, I find to be very well rounded, is one of my favorite. Honestly, I think Seiko's the best of all of them. I, I don't, that might be controversial. Again, people are going to – I don't know how they might take that, but I I think she's already the best one that they've got. I mean, the level of homework that she does is absurd. It's absurd. And then the level of detail <clears> – <throat> excuse me, detail that she brings in explaining to you what's happening and then more importantly, like, why it's important is pretty good. She doesn't do a lot of, like, you know, jawing about other stuff. I I, I think she's a superb commentator personally. Um and you're like, who's the best in the business? Again, part of that's just going to be subjective about what, what you like. Some of them have, you know, Dom is a little drier. DC it gets really bubbly and, per, you know, personable. And there's drawbacks and strengths to each of those roles. Um, but they've got a strong team. They've got a strong team. They've got a strong team. Now, you might be asking what the third person does, like sort of like the Joe Rogan role or another commentator. If they have two uh, color commentators, they'll try to find ones that have different strengths. One's that are a little bit about narrating the action in a more kind of fighter lens, and another one who's really giving you the technical, hardcore details. And that's sort of where Rogan feels. Like, Rogan, obviously, black belt in jiu-jitsu, experienced taekwondo competitor, been watching MMA for decades, literally. And it's, it's, he's kind of designed to be like the in-between, the guy who can tell you a story, the guy who can give you the fan's perspective, but the guy who can give you an educated perspective, depending on the situation, um, certainly as well. So he can kind of be that bridge between the worlds. And that's how they like it. Some people prefer two-man booths. Some people prefer three. I really think it all depends on the booth. I don't think one is necessarily stronger than the other in terms of the two versus three equation. I think it's just a an uh, uh, issue of matchups. But, you know, you give me... You know, I think John Anik deserves to be the one, the number one role. But like, you know, for me, you could give like John Gooden and Laura Sanko, good to go. Yeah, I don't think you need a whole lot more after that. You know, so again, your mileage on that may vary. Your mileage on that may vary. You may be one of these people that's like, no, I don't really see it that way. I like X and Y for these reasons. But those are the those are the roles they occupy, and that tends to be the lane in which they're working in. All right. Luke, the recent talk about Wonder Boy, oh yeah, right, not getting paid, has again shown to me how little those around MMA understand how the sausage is made. It's the same as when commentators, fighters, analysts, etc., complain about fight scoring. It's blatantly obvious most don't understand con- most don't under contracts understand contracts. I think you mean and how they're structured. This is so different. 
than other major sports where everyone and their mother understands salary caps, trades, and combines, blah, blah, blah. What do you account this to? How can so many in the sport not know how it actually operates? Uh, and then he has something very, very nice to say. Uh, okay, so the answer is this. For folks who don't understand this, um, we went through this. Now, when did Tony Ferguson... Let me pull up his topology. I, I I don't know what you guys use for records, fighter records. Topology has kind of become my favorite because they also put in, in chronological order, the canceled bouts, which is important when looking at Tony's... Uh, fuck, man. That's got some losses on there, but that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the one... No, it wasn't this one. It was this one or this one? Which one was it? UFC... 209. Yes, this was the one. Okay, it's UFC 209. So I was there for UFC 209. You'll recall Tony ultimately weighed in. I think Khabib never made it, right? I don't think he ever made it. Certainly, like the fight was off. I don't think either he either missed weight or he didn't make it at all. I think he didn't make it at all. And there was a question at the time about whether Tony was going to get paid. I believe that they compensated him somewhat, but not fully, according to whatever his uh, bout agreement or his contract had called for. But it was after this time that I began to look into it, being like, "Why? how can they just decide not to do it? And the answer is, yeah, they can decide not to do it. So you may have missed this. Some folks have talked about it. I'll repeat it here. But um, I had UFC fighters send me their contracts after this moment. I asked to see some of them. And every single one had the exact same provision as it relates to what I'm about to say. There is no such thing as show money and win money in uh, UFC or even from what I've seen, MMA contracts. Certainly not in UFC contracts. It doesn't exist. They they do split. They have a bifurcation. And on one side, it's uh, bout money. And the other side, or, or purse, purse money. And then the other side is bonus. So that's how they split it. It's split it with purse and bonus. And of course, the conditions under which you would receive the bonus is uh, usually it's enumerated that you win and you, you can get it. The way you have to get the purse money would be bout completion. That's how you have to get it. So the long story short is there is nothing that I've seen in anyone's UFC contract. Now, I've not seen every UFC contract, but I can say every UFC contract that I have seen has the exact same provision, purse and bonus. That's it. Purse only gets paid upon bout completion. There are no mechanisms to force the UFC to pay if you weigh in and your opponent misses and then the fight for whatever reason falls through, it doesn't exist. And so I think Tony ended up getting paid in that moment because there was at that time as well, this was, what, what was this? This was um, January, February, March of 2017. In March of 2017, there was a bit of a public uproar about it because, hey, Tony was kind of near the peak of his powers. This was the co-main event against Habib or supposed to be anyway, and hey, he's this guy, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. Why is he not getting paid? So I think they ended up compensating them there as a, as, as a result. They may do something similar here. You know, you want my personal take on what it all means. Again, this is why when, like, when, when fighters make videos about how they don't like MMA media talking about fighter pay, it just blows my fucking mind. I just can't really believe that that, like, of all the things to be upset about, that's what they're upset about. Like, that is that doesn't seem to me an efficient use of resources, but okay, neither here nor there. The reality is one: uh, Wonder Boy was able to say no to the fight because I guess he has enough financial freedom that he's able to do that, which is a great thing. I'm very glad to see that. Not that I'm glad to see the fight fall through, but that he has uh, financial resources that he's not forced into taking fights that he doesn't feel comfortable taking. 
Um, that's the first thing I'd say. I don't think that's going to be very common of a lot of guys. And I think a lot of folks are saying, why did you know UFC made 387 million in profit just last year? Profit, remember, all after all their expenses, that's how much they took home extra, uh, was 387 million. Of course, they can afford to pay for this. Like, why wouldn't they? And the answer is yes. Like, yeah, money is really not the issue here. Um, Right in terms of like, does the UFC are they good for it? Like, if yes, they can easily afford to pay this and a whole lot more. That's not really the point. The point is they don't want to be leveraged. That's what they don't want. Right? What they don't want is to be shown that there's a way to say no um, to things that interrupt the UFC's ability to churn out content at the schedule that they have set up for themselves. They don't want guys to be able to say no to that if they can at all help it. And so if they don't bend to the leverage here, it's not so much about like denying Wonder Boy as it is just kind of sending a message being like, we're just not going to be leveraged for this. You guys don't have any protections in your contracts that make us pay any of this. And they're right. There aren't. There's nothing in those deals. Those guys sign deals. They sign agreements that say, you only get paid upon bout completion. Now, we can assess whether that is fair or not. I don't think it is very fair. And, you know, the argument that's been brought up about Wonder Boy has been that, well, listen, he had to pay for his camp and then he has to pay for his travel and he has to pay for his accommodations and everything on Fight Week. Like, this guy's out, you know, thousands of dollars at this point. So he's not, it's not like he's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I didn't make any money, but I didn't lose any money. He's already lost money. He's already lost money. So I think what the UFC did, if, if memory serves, I think what the UFC did for Tony at, in back in 2017 was they paid for like his camp and like all of that stuff. So he didn't like end up losing money, uh, so to speak. But he didn't, I don't think he, I don't think he made anything close to what he was supposed to make on, in his purse. That could be wrong. I, I have to double check that part. Um, and, you know, we'll see what they do with Wonder Boy if nothing else. But, you know, it's like... <laughs> When, when MMA media complains about fighter contracts, like this is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. Like this is not, like, how on earth can someone who's a fighter look at conversations around these issues and this issue in particular and think the media is trying to use it for anyone's benefit other than theirs? Um, I don't, I just don't understand that. I don't, I don't, I don't know how you can arrive at that position. Um, I understand that there can be some issues about um, pay being made public and what that could mean and people having a desire to keep some of that stuff um, private. I understand that um, as well. I don't think that ultimately is the right answer either because the more pay is made public, the more pay goes up. This is a you know a demonstrated record of things. But on this issue, this is the reality. These guys are signing contracts that have no protections in the event that their opponent doesn't make it after or around the weigh-ins. There's nothing in there that gives them a penny. It is upon bout completion. You know, there needs to be a change. There needs to be a change. I don't think any of us want to live in a world where we feel like fighters should have to get what seems like a fair deal based on UFC's generosity at that time. And, you know, I'm going to say it one more time, like technically speaking, it is the UFC's generosity. They don't contractually, they don't owe him anything. If his contract is like all the other ones I've seen, they don't owe him a penny. Um, so I would rather live in a world where some of these things are 
some some more of these protections, these kinds of protections um, are built in. Um, God, this is a tough question. Uh, if you can say, what is the future of room service diaries? If there is one, thoughts on getting Corey Sandhagen on? Yeah, dude. So um, I've talked to him back and forth the last, well, not back and forth. I talked to him briefly uh, over Instagram uh, a couple of weeks ago. We've been trying to get something set up. Uh, next time he comes here. So I think, I'm not sure when that will be, but soon. And because uh, I want to go sit down with him because he trains with Ryan Hall out of 50-50. So I wanted to go and uh, talk to him there. So we'll, we'll probably get something there set up. Um, there's a chance that there actually is one next week, actually. There, there might be. I don't know yet. I'm trying to figure that part out, but we're working on it, actually. So but part of it is that the other part is like, I don't know what to say. There's just, just a lot of stuff I can't really talk about right now uh, that will reveal itself in time. And I just have to be patient and then tell you guys to, you know, just hold your horses. So um, do I think there'll be future room service diaries? I will. And I don't know exactly when the next one is noting that it could be next week, but if not that one, I don't know when the next one would be. Um, but I suspect there will be some. So let's just see. All right. Good question. Hey, what the hell is going on with the Sydney card? Uh, it's only five weeks away and still no main event in sight. If the Izzy Strickland fight isn't happening, what options are left at that point? Boy, I really don't know. I really don't know. Um, I don't know. I, if I, Okay, so reading the tea leaves, Drickus isn't capable. Uh, maybe there's a way to get him out of that. I don't I don't know. I Probably not, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be in a position that they're in. And then the other part is they're waiting on Sean Strickland to get uh, any of his visa issues sorted. I don't know if that's on... Uh, I don't know what the regulatory hiccup there is or the or what the uh, official wait time could be. Um, I do know that, at least in the United States, during the pandemic, when it was at its peak, trying to get your passport was really, really difficult at that time. I think some of those wait times have come down, but this is a different process for a visa... Um, you know, and you're working with another country and all kinds of stuff. So I don't, I don't, I don't really know what that would look like. I, I would assume, I would assume an American who doesn't have, I don't know what his criminal record looks like. Um, but I would imagine if it's relatively clean, it should be relatively easy to get an Australian visa. I'm guessing. Um, only reason I guess that is because uh, for folks who are American who may not appreciate this, it's typically like certain passports get you in certain. Again, I know we're talking about a visa, not a passport, but I'm just sort of noting like documentation from the United States is a, you know, you're not going to get like, for example, my wife and I were leaving Turkey. Um, you know, she has to bring both of her passports depending on where we're going. And, you know, when they see the Colombian passport, they pull her out of line every time, every time. man. like it's just, you know people are like Colombians are still living in the shadow of what happened with the drug war in the nineties and how it has influenced everyone's think <clears throat> thinking about Colombia up to this point. And it affects what people think about the average Colombian traveler. Like as a U.S. traveler, when you go to places, you don't typically, my experience has been, you don't typically run into those same kinds of hurdles. It's a very advantageous kind of, um, for traveling. It's an advantageous identity to have such as you can say a thing like that. Anyway, so I would imagine that they feel like there's a good chance that they can get Strickland through and therefore the fight can take place. But like, this is sort of what I mean. Like what is, to me, what the situation underscores is like something we've been identifying for a long time here, 
which is that if you just look at what the U, like what is the most important consideration to the UFC in terms of how their business runs, and it is consistency. Consistency, being able to have a schedule and the schedule doesn't change and they can move it along and fighters say yes and they don't have to haggle and move pieces. And of course, that inevitably is a part of it. Injuries for no other reason, right? But but the ideal scenario is we just pump this out on schedule, on time. Everyone says yes, blah, blah, blah. And then it goes forward. And the problem is, you know, they they it seems to me, even with just putting overflow on the Apex cards, which, you know, I don't think is the, it's not the funnest strategy, but you can rationalize why they do that. It still doesn't leave them in a strong position to meet all of their, uh, in this particular case, overseas and pay-per-view demands. You know, they just don't have the roster to, they've got an incredible roster. I mean, there's no denying that, but even with as incredible as it is, to meet all of their travel demands and all of their, you know, uh, event locations and overseas partnerships and everything else that goes in, into making these events what they are, they don't have the roster, it looks like, to be able to do this one in a more effective way. And that just sort of tells you the limits. Like, they're pushing their product at the limits of how it can be spread and organized and, uh, frankly, effectively promoted. So, I mean, I think in the end, Strickland will probably get through, and I think this will all be not for naught. It's a lesson about – it still underscores some other difficulty. I just don't think they're going to be have no main event. But to your point, if it doesn't happen, I don't I don't even know what you would – I don't. they would have to – like, listen, the UFC, you got to give them credit in this issue of – they're able to pull a rabbit out of their hat better than almost any other promoter I've seen. You know, when they lost – John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, UFC 200. They got Anderson Silva on like 48 hours notice. I mean, just, you know, like just the most insane thing you'd ever seen in your life. And the fight wasn't all that great, but the point being was like Anderson was still a big name and like you'd never thought about that pairing, but you're like, well, I don't know what's going to happen with that one. There's like a lot of ways, you know, that could go. Um, so just a, just a crazy just a crazy situation that they're able to navigate um, usually. So don't underestimate the UFC's ability to pull, as I mentioned, to pull a rabbit out of their hat. They're pretty good about that. But I think what we're also witnessing is the limits of what they can reasonably do in terms of meeting all the, um, serving all the masters that they have to serve, whether it's overseas events, whether it's the middleweight division, whether it's, pay-per-view uh you know consistent great pay-per-view headlining roles for championships like they just don't it's difficult to do that uh without uh it's difficult to pull all of that off given the attrition rate either due to injury or some other kind of logistical challenge that makes putting those bouts together um possible it's tough uh let's see did the UFC drop the ball with Amanda Nunes? Nunes spelled wrong. As far as marketing and really pushing her to be a massive star, no, I don't think so. Looking at her resume, her dominance, her being a role model, the work she doesn't, uh, the work she does in her country, also being a representative of the LGBTQ community, it seems like it would be a match made in heaven, and she would be a massive global superstar. I.e., Ronda Izzy. I can't help to think that the UFC really could have done. Well, okay, yes, so. What I would say is once it became clear that she was going to just be absolutely beating the brakes off of everyone, I think they eventually got around to it. They gave her the Modella campaign and, you know, um, a series of other things to to promote her. You heard Dana White's tenor about her 
not exactly like totally shift, but he really laid it on thick about how talented she was and what a menace and all this stuff. And they really kind of got behind her there. And I think what you saw was the fan base, um, you know, really warm up to her, but not necessarily elevate her on the star level. Darren Ravel, we talked about this. Darren Ravel thought the UFC was making a huge mistake, you know, really going after um, Amanda Nunes and promoting her in the way that, they, I mean, Darren Ravel was like, you guys are promoting Amanda Nunes too much. You know, what you guys should be doing is promoting Ronda and whoever else more. And they're, you know, and, and the argument that the UFC really understood and the situation that they understood was simply that there was no choice. You don't get someone this good and then decline to promote them enough. Like, they're just going to be in these enormous bouts of consequence and they're going to be doing amazing things. It's just stupid to get in the way of that. You just have to let that process play out. When you got someone like Amanda Nunes coming around and just like crushing the institution of 130 i mean she decimated that division you know like people are like why is 135 not so great dude because amanda Nunes beat the fuck out of it that's why like she just annihilated these people you know and so there's just not much left there's not much left that's interesting there's not much left that's like there's not much left meat on the bones anymore you know it's gonna take some time for that rejuvenation process to happen similar to what dude even john jones has been gone from 205 for how long and they still haven't unfucked that thing this is what happens when you have like dominant figures in that division. They just, they crush it. They crush it. But like, you can't get, I mean, that's, that's part of the fight game too. Like you can't get in the way of that. Like that is going to be what it's going to be. It's better to let that greatness play out and figure out what to do on the other end than it is to like interrupt it for something that's not nearly as authentic and not nearly as good. Um, so I will agree that there, like, for example, like heading into the Ronda fight, they really underpromoted Amanda Nunes there. I think the UFC does deserve some, you know, culpability in that particular circumstance, and there might be some other ones as well. However, I also think that once the worm turned and it realized like this was just going to be her place for a while, I do think that they, you know, I do think that they gave her um, a good boost. I do think that they put. I'll say this. I do think that they put some resources behind her that mattered, that boosted her appeal, that boosted her pocketbook. You know, it, it it changed some of her um, uh, professional fortunes. Could it have been better? You can always make an argument. Should they have done better against, for example, against Ronda and perhaps some other ones? 100%. But I don't think it's exactly fair if, to say that they didn't do as much as they could have if Darren the Darren Ravels of the world are like, well, why are you promoting her at all? Like, everyone cares about her. Don't worry about her. Like, if you're, you, you can't win in a scenario like that. You're asking, like, why wasn't she more popular? Not everyone is necessarily destined for that, you know? Not everyone, it's like it's a difficult thing. And it also, dude, it takes a long time. It took Anderson Silva a long time before he got popular. If you're used to the Conor McGregor speed running of popularity, it might seem like it, you know, it doesn't take that long. Conor's path to stardom is exceptionally unusual. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it happen so fast for anyone else, certainly not in MMA. Boxing might be a little bit different, but in MMA, I've never seen someone go from that little to that much that fast. He's just the outlier of all outliers in in, in that regard, getting back to UFC 205 and Eddie Alvarez, a key night in building that. So, um, you know, it takes a long time. Like Izzy, like, I remember uh, we did a, it was before 281, UFC 281. It was me, Chuck Mindenhall, and Brian. We did the, you know, the pregame preview. And in it, we had talked about, like, I kind of thought, like, Izzy was pretty popular. And they were like, ah, I'm not so sure yet. Now, if we had that conversation today, I don't think they would be nearly as resistant. But I think they ended up being more right at that time, certainly, than I was. Uh, actually, you know, 
they were right. I was wrong, I think, is a better way to put it. Um, they had a better sense of what his popularity was. But now, after that loss and then the comeback win and how viral that went, in addition to the other body of work he had put together, I think now you're really beginning to see him hit some new levels and some new strides. And, of course, he was making progress before. Like, it was always an elevation thing. It's never one thing or the other. It's not overnight. It's a, it's an accumulate, accumulative process. But there can be certain moments that really trigger the real growth, the real transcendence, the real movement. And it was after 287. But look how long he'd been fighting in the UFC for all that time. You know, it takes a while. It takes a while. And it's not automatic. And um, it's not going to happen for everyone, even when you get that push. Uh, it can help, but it's not, nothing's a guarantee. The audience has to, has to accept it. So, uh, and they did accept Amanda. I'm just saying like it, you know, not everyone is built for, or has the ingredients to be a megastar. It's star power is, it's not, it's not a skill. It's kind of either you have it or you don't, but people don't have it in equal amounts. I think is the best way to put it. Uh, all right. I mean, I don't know how much to say about this. In fact, very little. Does Biden lose to any Republican candidate, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, considering the state of the economy and the story with his son? I mean, from what I can tell from every pollster that is worth a damn, they're all basically saying not that polling at this point is irrelevant. No, uh, you can have very important polling for any uh, races that might be immediate, but any kind of presidential forecasting at this stage is essentially statistically just not meaningful um could go in a lot of different ways it's just hard to parse out what any of these like head-to-head matchups mean in august of 2023 for an election that's not you know for some time um so i think i I would probably stick with that um you want like my personal hunch my personal hunch is that like you know trump is kicking all the other uh uh candidates on the republican primary fields ass like they're not even really close at all and so I think he's a virtual lock for the nomination. I don't think that any of these indictments in terms of his political fortunes in the primary have any real role to play other than perhaps to galvanize support around him. I do wonder if, uh, and again, we'll see how these trials play out. And you know, God, I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like, God only knows like what's going to happen with all of that. Uh, he's getting, he's getting um, um, arraigned today here in DC, I think. Right. So, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, and there's such partisanship on these elections where everyone who's on either side kind of already made up their mind and the folks in the middle, I do think uh, the indictments and ongoing trials will probably um, modestly hurt him with that middle of the road group, but that is completely speculative. Who the hell knows? I have no wisdom about this whatsoever. And again, the pollsters who look at these kinds of things say, Presidential forecasting this far out in head-to-head battles, almost worthless. So let's see. All right. Luke, with the women's... uh, There's not one on this one. I'll skip that one. A little higher here. All right, Luke, you have spoken a lot about Bud's timing even before this fight, but can you speak on his calmness? Yeah, man. Holy God. I have followed combat sports for over 15 years now, and I've never seen someone so calm inside the ring or octagon. Can you break down how one achieves such level of confidence and calmness whilst performing at a very little level? My guy, if I knew how to do that, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing this job. Holy Jesus. I uh, Anytime I have a high-pressure event, I feel it. I feel it. You know, what do they always say? It's like, you know, the, uh, the old adage, um, it's okay to have butterflies in your stomach as long as you make the, all the butterflies fly in formation, right? Sort of the idea there. Um. 
let me just talk about Bud. Okay, so these two are related. These two are related, and Bud is such a great example. Even if you're just an MMA, MMA fan, right? Because this, this, the like the things you can learn about Bud that you can then take and like look at and examine in MMA fighters. There's a lot of things you can take. Calmness being one of them. Think of it this way. We talk a lot in the sport about fight IQ. Now, what does fight IQ mean? Others might have different ways of defining it, but to me, I look at it as smart decision-making real-time in a fight. Now, there's a little bit more to it than that. There can be some fight IQ uh, shown in terms of like the level of strategic and tactical planning that you put into something, and then, of course, executing it um, as well. But more so, it tends to revolve around the idea that you can problem-solve and you can make good decisions through the course of a fight. In order to make good decisions, or rather, um, under what conditions are, is anyone, athlete or not, in a high-stress situation, under what conditions are they likely to make better choices than, you know, than suboptimal choices? And the answer is when you're calm. It's when you're calm, right? If you're calm, you can think through things. If you're hurried, if you're stressed, if you're frantic, if you're angry, if you're sad or you're distracted, it won't work. It won't work. If there's some kind of where your heart rate is elevated, you won't think clearly. For a guy like that to be put under, you know, again, it wasn't just that Errol Spence is good. Errol Spence is a high IQ fighter himself and a high IQ pressure fighter. He is bringing the fight to you. Make no mistake about it. Now, Bud diffused it like we'd never seen before, but dude, Every other guy, I said it before, every other guy Spence tried his game on, they all broke. They all broke. And in certain cases, Brooke, Ugas, breaking their face in the process. Like, they all broke. Just Bud is Bud, and he's different. But he's able to make good choices by being calm. He's able to make good choices and smart, clear thinking and recognizing what's in front of him and what his assignment is, what he wants to do in the situation, what he wants to take away, what's coming at him and how to navigate this. He's able to make great decisions because he's not up here. You know, that's why you always see these guys like, I'm going to rah, 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 you know, frantic. And that's good for someone like having someone loud and frantic and big and scary that will work on like a lot of people because they don't know what to do without that and they wilt under it and whatnot. But like if you're fighting somebody skilled, that becomes a liability because you can't keep that up for very long. You're going to get tired. You're going to make bad decisions raging out on someone. So like, I actually think that like, there's a real natural like response. Like why do we rage in moments of conflict? Because a lot of the time that's going to work. You just rage out on someone. They don't have any fight training. You might be bigger than them. You get the jump on them anyway, and it, it'll work actually. You, you'll, you might have some decent success. It's just that like, this is why pro fighters tell you you can't do that shit because it won't, it won't work against them. Like try that shit against Bud. See what it does for you. You're going to wake up looking at the lights, friendo. Like it's, it's just not, <laughs> it's not going to go your way. It's not going to go your way, you know? So um, now you're asking, how does he do it? Dude, I mean, he's a, he's a genius. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like the guy's a boxing savant, you know, I, one of these guys, I don't know if he was built to do it because athletically it seems like everything he tries, he's pretty good at, but um, he just has a, an ability to your point, And I share it like I've never seen for someone to 
and just problem solve, you know, just problem solve. And against a guy like Spence, who throws a ton of volume, who stays in your face, works to the body, powerful jab, good cardio, battle-tested, and then to be that calm under that kind of duress, dude, he's he's a superhero, dude. He's a superhero. Like, I don't, I just, I don't, I don't, this is what I mean when I say it's moving. It's like, I don't, I didn't even know shit like this was possible, you know, to, to, to watch someone do something like that. I didn't know you could do that. Look at him just, and again, is he doing the same kind of thing? And, you know, again, we're not comparing all the achievements, but like these moments of brilliance, like when he was kind of under duress and then he sees his moment and then he goes, he's making a smart calculated decision, even though he's being pressured and he's got this, this giant Brazilian monster raining punches down on him. He's thinking through just enough to make a smart choice and then he gets them. That's what he's doing, you know? So fight IQ is related to the, not just the physical posture you take, but the mental posture and kind of like this competitive attitude. And so, you know, why do some guys make better choices than others? Because some guys have the, you know, the sort of psychological and physiological makeup. And then some guys also, like the other part too is Bud always puts himself positionally in spots to make great choices, right? So it's all related. It's all related. Positioning battle, mental battle, tactical battle, strategic battle, all of it, all of it works together. But if you're calm and you're, and you're able to problem solve and you're as talented as he is, Dude, you're going to do crazy good things. And he did. And he did. You know. Luke, if you're Michael Chandler, what's the best fight if when the Connor one falls through? Like, dude, I don't even know. Fighting Colby at 170? Like, I don't even like what's it's like what's second best to Connor McGregor? Mm, everything. <laughs> In terms of like what your payday would be and like what the significance would be, you know? What's what's the next best thing? Like Nate Diaz, but he's not even in the organization, you know? So I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know what I don't I don't know what you could do. I, I, I there really isn't. Here we go. All right, I'll get to some of these. Uh okay. I'll go to this one just a little bit. Luke, do you believe Spence will bounce back? Yeah, I don't know. I believe the psychological damage to be much worse than the physical one. Abrazo desde Argentina. Uh, thank you. Hugs from Argentina. Um, okay, so I got asked about this today by somebody inside boxing. This is what they asked me. Like, do you think the weight cut really hurt him? You know? And my view is the same one that BC has, which is that there's no doubt in my mind that that weight cut is not an optimal place. Like that's just not 147 is just not optimal for him. But I don't think that really explains the results. I think what really explains the results are one, there was just a big gap in skill, just a big one. So like I do think he'll perform. I mean he'll perform better at 154 because you can't do much worse. I mean, you know, it's that was pretty one sided. So I but I do think in general he'll perform better at 154. Um, because I think he'll just be a lot healthier and um, better. But there was a skills gap. But the other one, too, it's like, dude, he'd been off for a while. Like, it'd been a long time since that fight with Ugas. And I went back and I listened, since I watched the fight so many times at this point, I went back and I listened to Derek James. That's the trainer for Errol Spence. I was listening to what he was saying in the corner. Dude, Errol wasn't doing any any of the shit he was telling him to do. And the stuff he was telling him to do was stuff I'd seen him do in other fights. 
you know, like maybe he was rattled. Um, maybe whatever. I, I think that the biggest factor that explained their difference was that Bud was better. Matter of factly, Bud was better. Uh, two, I think the time off between the Ugas fight and this one was way too much. Way too much. And then last but not least, I don't think the weight cut helped. I don't think it put him in a position to really withstand what he was getting hit with. But, dude, he was getting hit with clean shots. He was getting hit with really clean shots. Like, you know, you can only do so much when you're getting hit clean. Like, boxers, this is what I'm trying. I, I always try to explain this to people. Like, it's rare boxers get hit clean. I mean, you see it on highlight packages and stuff. But, like, in a 12-round fight, like, most of the stuff that lands is not even close to clean. Some of it is, like, pretty good. You know, there's like a handful that are like on the money, you know, but like hitting a guy like on the money clean, it's it, it doesn't happen very often to boxers. And dude, like everything he was getting hit with was clean. Everything. You know, it's just, it's impossible to land. So like, here's the point I wanted to make. So he has the car crash. He has the eye surgery. Crawford did an interview with Peter Rosenberg and Ebro of a Hot 97 in, in New York City. And in the interview, he says like when, when, when Spence came back into the Garcia fight, the Danny Garcia fight, he looked okay, not himself, but like, you know, good enough to win. And then he got better and better. The Porter fight was weird and whatever. But this is what this is what Crawford said. And this is, I completely agree. Crawford said, well, after the Ugas fight, Spence looked spectacular. And I agree with that. I had reservations too. I was like, damn, he didn't look the same. This is bad. And then you watch him in the Ugas fight. And you're like, no, this is vintage Spence. I mean, that was vintage Spence. But the problem is like, okay, all these weight cuts and the eye surgery and the car wreck, like, did all of that matter? Hard to say. And now you add the beating. It's like, dude, at some point, that's that shit's going to matter. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know exactly what the impact of the eye surgery or the car wreck or this beating is. But, like, do I think he's the same guy in going to the rematch that he was even on this night or even before the Ugas fight or certainly even before the car wreck, like absolutely not. Like there clearly has a, been a toll taken, you know? Um, I thought he could win. I obviously thought he could win, in, which was, you know, just comically off the mark. But um, will he bounce back? He's not going to bounce back against Crawford. I just, who who is going to pick against Crawford in the rematch, even at 154? Like... <laughs> Like who's who's doing that? Who's who's the guy? You know, doing that? I don't I don't get that. Mm -mm. Man. Uh, all right, Luke. Uh, with Makachev and Oliveira uh, scheduled, this seemingly by proxy has likely confirmed that Volk versus Teporia is on the table. Both looked phenomenal in their last bouts. How do you see that going? Is this a case of young upstart versus the old king? Well, listen. Is Volk a better fighter than Teporia? Yes. Not, not a very difficult conversation to have, right? Like, he's better. Uh, and he's beaten better guys. Um, but I think what I would say is, one, a lot of the defensive issues that we worried about Teporia, he really tightened up, and we saw that in the Emmett fight. I think that was great. Uh, and listen, Volk has been dropped in numerous fights. I go back to it. Um, Teporia is an excellent boxer. For MMA, um, super well-rounded, absolutely tough as shit. Remember, he got dropped with a head kick by Jai Herbert and came back and like, like, not only knocked the guy out with a single punch, it looked like he tore him in half. 
I mean, and it, that was up a weight class. Like, so you know, dude, if he touches Volkanovski's chin hard enough, it doesn't matter how good Volkanovski is. He'll he'll be in deep shit. He'll be in deep shit. So I would favor Volkanovski to win just by his ability, I think, to keep a guy like Taporia resetting. All of that stuff he does about resetting, 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 inside let cut kick and then moving out to this angle and then faking the level change and then coming up top off the stance switch and all that stuff where you can't get a beat on him. He's forcing you to make computations and blah, blah, blah. Like That's going to be a hard thing for anyone to deal with. Dude, even the great Max Holloway by the third fight couldn't do much with it, right? We're talking about Max fucking Holloway had trouble. Dude, if Max Holloway's got trouble with it, anyone else at featherweight is going to have trouble with it, period. End of story. It's just that Volk isn't, Volk is human. Taporia has good, uh, no, Taporia has excellent power. He has very good boxing. He has good accuracy. Um, that is a dangerous fight for Volkanovsky, dot, 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 but one he should win. I'll leave it at that. But like, I'll say this, if Taporia goes in there and outboxes him, and, you know, sometimes Volkanovsky will invite a little bit of risk, there's small windows, but he'll do it. Dude, like if he gets flatlined, that wouldn't that should not be surprising. That should not be surprising. It's not like it's when the guys say it's just who's better on that night. Dude, they're right. They're right. They're really right. Now, sometimes the gap can be so huge, you know, you wonder what night where anything could be different. But a lot of times it really comes down to what, again, fight IQ, decision making, positioning, strategy, tactics, all that stuff. Um and Taporia is very good and 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 is a real threat. It's just that what Volkanovsky does, I just don't know who's got an answer for that at any nearby weight class. So the thing that will get Volkanovsky is, is, is probably father time, right? So if he does this long enough and his reaction is, timing is a little bit off, if his rhythm's a little bit off, if, he's, if his ability to get out of the way is off, like once the physicality that makes that style work begins to decline, then the then that style simply won't work as much. and It'll be much more porous, and guys will able to be able to find ways through. That's, I think, what's likely to cause him trouble. What you have to ask yourself is, is that what's next for him, given what you just saw? Doesn't seem likely. Doesn't seem likely. Someone says, I'm looking to learn more about ground and pound. Any fights or fighters you would like to watch for ground and pound technique? Yeah, man. Whew, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. You could go all the way back to Mark Kerr. Um, you could go back to early, if you wanted to start early enough, you could go back to early stage Tito Ortiz, Mark Coleman, um, Matt Hughes, uh, even early, this is true, anyone who watched MMA, do, do, okay, here's a perfect example. Go watch Joe Riggs versus uh, Kendall Grove. I believe that took place in Icon or Super Brawl. I'm not sure what it was called at the time, which one. Um, that, should, that should be on YouTube. Go check that out, Icon and Super Brawl. Um, uh, Kendall Grove and uh, Joe Riggs early early stage Joe Riggs had nightmarish ground and pound um, today you know who's got some is Jack Hermanson Jack Hermanson has an entire tutorial I've watched it he's got some clever stuff particularly around you know getting reactions to turn combination pinning back work mount work half guard work knee shield work um, wrist control um, he's got a lot of good stuff around that I'd say obviously Habib, uh, Bryce Mitchell, um, um, a lot of the Dagestani guys. Anyone who anyone who uses their own legs to wrap the legs of their opponent 
So like a lot of the Dagestani guys, Bryce Mitchell does that. That's going to be, that's, that's more the modern style of ground and pound. It used to be like work inside guard. Randy Couture had good half guard ground and pound as well. Um, I'd also recommend looking at Shavkat Rachmanov, who has a bit of a different style of ground and pound, who absolutely go to the ground with you, but he likes to like rock guys, drop them, and then not get on top and go chest to chest to like cover position and hold them there. He likes to step over them and then begin to work on top in order to you know land some heavier shots so he he denies his opponents the ability to grip from underneath um and it's a trade-off because they can't make grips but he can't hold them there but he's got much more leverage and torque on his punches so he can really do a lot more with them so it's all these different ranges all these different types but i would say the modern style is is shelving wrapping pinning legs to reduce movement and then some kind of wrist control on one side and then opening up with the other. That's going to be... And also, I did a, a Mackenzie Dern ground and pound kind of look at all the stuff I thought she was doing wrong. Now, in her last fight, she got away from a lot of that. But if you go back and you see that she's trying to go like high on the back to look for arm bars and then balancing on her head and like kind of punching like this, like these like mechanically really disadvantageous positions where A, people have their legs to still scramble and she's so high, she really doesn't, doesn't even have torso control or the kind of ability to pin and then you know leverage yourself for maximum punching efficiency, just like all the wrong ways to do it, like a really like a jujitsu style for ground and pound, like a not a good one. You know, again, she's moving away from that, but like some of the stuff that I thought was wrong with that, um, you could take a look. All of that will get you going in a pretty good direction. Yeah. Uh, good question. Luke, I know this fight is unlikely, but how do you see a fight between Crawford and Ennis playing out? I can't remember the last time two boxers fought that were elite in both stances. Also loved your breakdown. Cheers. Uh, dude, I have been unbelievably high on Boots Ennis, and you're right. Like He can fight out of both stances really well. Crawford, you know, again, I want to say it one more time, guys. Crawford fought that fight in Southpaw. Now, turns out he can fight Southpaw really well, but I just want to point out, like, he only learned Southpaw because he's naturally an orthodox fighter, and he only learned Southpaw because of um, he broke his hand, and he didn't, uh, he broke his right hand, and he didn't want to lose time in the gym, so he's just like, fuck it, I'll just teach myself how to fight, you know, Southpaw, and, uh, and he did. And then he got so good at it that it's like, <laughs> you know, he, he's doing stuff like that. It's just, you know, he's, golly, man. That's a special one, if ever there was. Um, but Boots Ennis is who he's asking about. I mean, Boots Ennis, I thought all this time was going to be the one to go in there and, like, disrupt the Crawford-Spence order. Like, these guys were, would, would, would not fight each other. They would get too old. And then here comes Boots, and he beat them both, you know. Like, I really thought, not that that was, like, going to happen, but that was on the table. And then, um, and you know, Boots obviously looked tremendous, tremendous in his last contest. But it was much more stationary fighters. Like, so not, no one even close to the level of Crawford. I just, I can't pick against Crawford against against anybody at 147. Can't do it, dude. After what he did to Spence, can't do it. Now, Boots might give him a better fight. I don't think that's too crazy to say. But, like... I just I don't I don't know who's gonna beat a guy a boxer that smart. I just don't. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who that guy is. Um, you know, maybe we're all hyping up Bud too much. I don't think we are, but after what I saw on Saturday, I just cannot even f we talked about this. Like when BJ beat like Diego Sanchez or something, and you're like, dude, who on earth 
at this weight class is going to fucking beat this guy, you know? And again, of course, the answer ended up being Frankie Edgar. But like that moment where you're like, what, how is how is any or even Sean Shirk versus BJ Penn? Like, how is anybody going to beat this guy at 155? That's kind of how I feel about Bud Crawford right now, 147. Like, obviously, he's got all the belts anyway. But it's like, dude, who? What would you have to have? I don't. I don't even know what you could do. Like a guy who will eat you alive for any mistake that you make. Like this is the thing I mean. Like he, yeah. Like we always talk about it. Fighters who can take advantage of another fighter's mistake is a good fighter, dude. Crawford makes these guys make mistakes, dude. Continuously, round over round. Like people are like, oh well, Spence was lunging. Spence was lunging, but it was made worse by some of the things Crawford was doing. You know, oh, Spence was getting a little bit one note with some of his other stuff because everything wasn't working. Oh, Spence was, or Crawford was this close, then he's, you know, just out of the way or he pushes the jab off the angle or he's blocking and then coming up with the same hand. Like, dude, it's just, I don't know. I don't know who that guy is. I don't know. I don't know who the guy is that beats him. I don't know. I don't, I don't see it. Uh, and then lastly, someone's asking about, could you do a Terrence Crawford resume review? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. I think we. I'll talk to BC about that. It's not a bad idea. All right. With that in mind, let's see what you guys got. If there's not not a whole lot onto the uh, super chat. That's no worries. But I'll see what you got. I appreciate you guys taking a look, and we'll see how that goes. All right. Uh, let's see from Terrence himself, although spelled differently. Izzy versus DC Prime. What do the stats show? Uh, I think that Cormier's takedowns would probably be too much. Probably be too much. And you know. Cormier was drained at 205, but he's certainly going to be the bigger, stronger, not like the bigger frame, but he's going to be the stronger guy of the two. I don't think that that's, I think I'd, pr- I'd probably pick at 205. I'd pick, I'd pick DC. Connor runs his camps. Does tough prove he shouldn't? I I don't think that tough proves that. I think that like the results of what's going on proves that. Not, not I don't mean like all the stuff he is alleged to have done, but just the competitive results he's got. Now, the last one, obviously, was a horrible incident where he broke his his shin and all that stuff. And, like, I don't you know, how how much of it is related to his camp versus just bad luck. I don't know. That seems too difficult to parse. But, like, you know, beat, getting beaten by Dustin in their second fight the way he did, Tony, like, whatever he was doing was clearly insufficient. Like, clearly insufficient. So I would say that like the fight results he's been getting speak a little bit more to it than you know just showing up to Las Vegas and doing something for a reality show. Uh, did Izzy change Alex? He seemed gun shy against the cage. I didn't get that feeling at all. Will this hurt him in the future going up to light heavyweight? I thought he looked more careful in certain places. That's true. But like after you got if you got flatlined in your last fight. Wouldn't you be a little bit more careful in your next one, especially against a guy with again in Jan Blahovich who has like crazy good power? So I I won't what I'll say is I won't say you're wrong because we still have to see how he looks in the next fight and the next fight. And if we see accumulatively, hey, maybe there's something to it. It wasn't just that performance. But I felt like he was making like better decisions. And I still thought he put himself in the line of fire a little bit. Not as much, not as much. I guess what I'd say is let's wait and see. But I, my hunch is that you're probably overselling it a little bit. Super Dave asked, Luke, thanks for all the great content this past week. I have a question for Othello. When you got your... <laughs> Just absolutely whoring Othello. Just absolutely crushing him. All right. Uh, heard anything new about the Bell- about Bell Tour being bought? Nothing new. Nothing new. Everything I know, I've already told you guys. Nothing new. 
Pound for pound, hardest puncher, tank or in a way. My money is on the monster. I appreciate the boxing breakdowns. Maybe consider some for your own channel. Yeah. Hardest puncher, tank or in a way? Probably tank. Um, we haven't really seen how far. Like Inouye is in his fourth weight class. We haven't seen how far Tanks goes. So I would say Tank right now because I have a feeling it goes pretty far. Um, but in terms of like what's proven across weight classes, Inouye is more proven, not just as a winner, but like you just saw what he did to Fulton in his fourth weight class, you know. With Bud having the best performance you've ever seen live, what still makes MMA your favorite sport if it is? I mean, I just my relationship to MMA is just a lot more thorough. I don't have the same relationship to boxing. But, you know, like... I said this before and I'll say it again, man. If you go to a boxing event, like, and until you've done this as media, there's just no... You, you, you just have to see it for yourself. There's no way to... I can't prove it. I cannot prove what I'm about to say. This is not, you know... Um, people are so much happier. People are like happy to see each other and stuff. Like it's camaraderie, it's fellowship. And yeah, of course there's beefs here. And you saw what happened with the, the Charlos and stuff. Like, of course, all of that, it's the fight game. Like, you, you know, I'm speaking on a relative scale here, but relative to MMA, everyone's kind of like mad. The fighters are mad at the media. The media is mad at the fighters. Media mad at each other, mad at the promoters. Promoters, promoters are mad at media. Like everyone's just bitter at each other all the time and it's just unhappy you know it's like i still um obviously like you know what mma means to my life is still extremely significant but like am i a little tired of that yeah i'm a little tired of that it's it's exhausting and it's not fun and when there's an alternative that doesn't tax you in that way like how would you feel about it you know so um to me ultimately i don't really have to make a choice because they they mean different things like MMA is about complexity in the, the most diverse sense of things and like completion about fighting as this overall thing. And boxing is just about boxing. It's much more narrower, but because it is narrower, it is much, it's much cleaner. It is much more, um, you know, again, we talked about this little specificity, the level of detail on the skill is in general, typically much higher. Uh, so I don't, I get different things from them. I think at this point is what I would say. But, you know, am I a little bit sick of, like, M everyone in MMA being, like, angry at each other all the time? Yeah, it's fucking awful. And it's, like, who who would enjoy something like that, you know? Never see another fight or lose 6%. Uh, oh, never see another fight or I would never see another fight. I don't want to, like, become. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just do something else with my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Bryce Mitchell's purple marking is purple spray and antibacterial spray for horses that country boys have been known to you. Ah, Ah, okay, 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 okay. The thing he had on when he was like trying to do the ice tub or whatever. All right, that makes sense. Uh, okay, Luke, would you rather pay for Zuck versus Musk or tip an Uber Eats guy who don't know how to use an elevator? MGM. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, when I order Uber Eats, I always meet someone outside. I never ask them to come to my room because that's just sketch. And then would I rather, there's almost nothing I would, like, you'd have to pay me to watch that shit, you know, like, or, you know, I'd watch it for free if it was a, a, a GIF or something. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I just don't even care. I just, I, you know, if, if, it, if it gets you through your day, it gets through your day. It doesn't get through mine. Has there ever been any bankruptcy filings of active UFC fighters? 
Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's been a couple. There's been a couple who had like gyms go south or something like that. I, I mean, I don't know if you're referencing someone in particular. Um, Luke, will we see Poirier Gaethje 3? You might. Also, when can we expect the diamond on RSD? And of course, the dog special guest. Um, it's going to be hard to get dusted in New York City. I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. So I don't know. I would love to sit down and talk with him again. I don't know if I'll get the opportunity anytime soon, but I guess we shall see. Will we get a Poirier Gaethje 3? I hope. I hope. Not because I need the result to be different, even though I obviously like Dustin Poirier a lot, but I just didn't think that that fight seemed like of all the ways it could go, this was one of the shorter ends. And if they fought a third time, is there reason to believe it could go much longer? I think there is. I think there is. And so for that reason... I wouldn't mind seeing a third one, um, but I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Who wins a power slap contest? What, what are these questions? Between Nganu and Wilder, admit you would watch that bullcrap. No, I would not watch a power slap between them. Uh, you know, again, or I would catch it on whatever, but I'm not going to go out of my way. Who would win? I don't know. First one to, I mean, maybe Nganu because he has a, like, I think he has better punch resistance, but we don't really know for sure. I think he has better punch resistance, but like I'm not. That's a tough one. Also, who gives a shit is really a better question. And like, also to Deontay and Francis, please don't do that because you guys don't need to. You know, uh, I see similarities in the way that Ali treated Frazier and Foreman with the way that Izzy has treated Rob and DDP. Ali later regretted and apologized. Do you think Izzy will feel the same? Well, he, uh, if you guys didn't see, he already apologized for the stuff about like questioning Rob Whitaker's, you know, New Zealand roots. Um, see, it's not going to go that way. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Um, he already apologized for it. You know, he was, he was wrong to question Rob. And when confronted with the evidence of what he had said, he acknowledged that that was in, in unfair, and I thought that that was really uh, good of him to do that. I thought that was appropriate. So um, I don't know exactly what you mean with respect to, you know, Frazier and Foreman didn't get treated the same. They got, they got treated differently for different reasons, and Rob and DDP are not exactly along the same kind of track, but at a bare minimum, he has uh, acknowledged that questioning Rob's New Zealand uh, heritage was not his place to do. And ultimately he, he was wrong for it. Uh, and I agree. He was wrong for it. All right. Uh, did you see Oppenheimer Sunday? I'm going Sunday. When, when, when did I have time to see Oppenheimer in the last, like however long it's been out, I've barely been outside, you know? So um, no, I have not, but I'm going Sunday. I'm going Sunday. So we'll see. Uh, all right, let me a couple of video. I don't agree with some of your takes, uh, blah, 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 but it's brave to publicly reevaluate a stance. Respect. Yeah, I mean, here's what I'll say on this. Um, there's nothing else I really want to say after that. Because um, I got a lot of blowback from people who uh, I would say are typically in alignment with my worldview. And I saw most of it or a lot of it. And I thought that they all made, uh, not all of them, but I thought many of them made a lot of really good points. And uh, here's what I'll say. Um, if you feel like that there's ever a point in your life, whatever the issue may be, where acknowledging a change in perspective or that you may have been wrong for something, we're just talking about Izzy doing it, right? If you feel like 
you know, if you've really thought it through and you feel like acknowledging that to a person, to an audience, to if you have whatever, whatever the reason for it is and whoever the recipient is, if you've really thought it through and you've got like the counsel of others and you feel like it's an important and valuable exercise, I would never, ever want to dissuade you from doing that. In fact, I think it is that in certain circumstances, it can be very valuable, but I think I have to reflect on how I did it and uh, I did not accomplish what I was setting out to do. In fact, I did quite the opposite of that. And I did that because I did not put enough um, I think that process required a lot more uh, care than I gave it. And because I did it the way that I did it, um, I confused a lot of people. I gave a lot of the wrong impressions and I'm really extremely disappointed in myself for how that went. Again, not so much the exercise of on any issue in your life. If you ever feel differently and then if you find it valuable to reveal that under, I don't, I don't want people to think that there's no, like there's no cause for that. or There's no case for that. That's certainly not what I mean, but uh, instead um, don't do what I did. Uh, be much more thorough and careful and, and use more consideration um, to, to make sure that you accomplish the goal that you wanted to accomplish. I did not. I did not, unfortunately. But I don't really know what to do about it. I don't know what else to say about it. I'm extremely dismayed. I'm extremely disappointed in myself. Um, I have to figure out what to do. I don't really know. So, yeah. Um. I'll just leave it at that. And I hope, I think the last thing I'll say on this is uh, not even about this, but last thing I'll say is I think this is a moment in my life where I could really benefit by, I already do, but I can see that there's more I can be doing to a do a lot more listening, a little bit less talking on certain things and B uh, I need to focus on the quality of my work. And I think a lot of the issues that I'm experiencing personally and internally could be resolved or at least my time better spent by really drilling down and making sure that day to day, week to week, month to month, I'm doing the kind of quality work that in my given profession that people um, expect. All right. Uh, you seem exhausted yet invigorated. Ben Shapiro would say you need a Helix mattress, Helix mattress for your sleep. Yeah, dude, that was... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they're related, right? Like, you ever seen someone, they go to, like, a concert, and the next day their voice is gone, you know, or something? Like, I, it was just, it was, I slept no more than four hours at a time, and that was the most I ever got in a night, and then we were traveling, and you're in this thing, and you're in that thing, and, like, oh, man, that was a rough one. But after Saturday, dude, it was like, I said it on air on, I did CBS Sports HQ, the video was at, like, 600K views. Um. It was a religious experience, man. That was a religious experience. I, I just overcome with emotion that way. It was crazy. Uh, take on the Ariel versus Jamal Hill thing. Again, I don't know if I, I this people, this is what I mean about like focusing my attention. I did see some of it. I'm not gonna pretend I didn't. I did see some of it. I did see what I thought. I think I saw something from Ariel saying he wanted, he invited Jamal back on the show. I don't know if he will or not. Um, I don't have much of a take, to be honest with you. I 
I don't know about the tweeting thing that like whether it's true that Hill was tweeting in a way that was negative towards Yuri when Yuri had, you know, relinquished the title and stuff. I don't know to what extent any of that is true or like what he's referencing. I don't follow um, uh, Jamal on Twitter, so I, I, I didn't, I have not seen it. I don't know what that's about. Um, I don't really know what to say. I, my, my first reaction was I didn't understand. I didn't fully uh, uh, gather why Jamal was as upset as he was, um, you know, um, but like these guys are very protective over their image. They're very protective about any perceived slight. And that's the kind of mentality that a lot of fighters have. And I understand that. I, I honestly believe, to be candid with you, I think, you know, Jamal's not asking for my recommendation nor am I offering one. But were it me, listen, I can tell you the dispute that I had with Ariel went way beyond what his dispute was. Like way, way, like it was so much deeper than that. And I talked it out with him and... I think I'm in a better place today than I was before I had that. So um, my recommendation would be, you know, like he's a grown man. He'll figure it out for himself. But like, did I personally get something out of like sitting down with Ariel and talking about the issues that we had and like coming to an understanding and then coming to like an agreement? I, th I found it to be very valuable. I found it to be a very valuable exercise. And I was able to work with him like no problem. over. Like, dude, it was no problem. Dude, I frankly, I kind of missed it. I can be honest with you. Like, I really enjoyed working with Ariel. I, like, it was fun. Like, you know what I mean? So, um, if I can have the kind of issues that I've had with him, and I can come to the place where I feel like I feel, I feel like anybody else could. But listen, Jamal's a grown man, and he's going to do what he's going to do. Uh, I tend to think over time this issue will be resolved. It didn't seem to me irresolvably awful. It seemed to me uh, something that could be worked out. So. I hope they do. A brawl broke out at the DS Paul face-off. <laughs> I didn't see that. I saw the security fighting, uh, but I didn't see that. Uh, so I don't know. Jesus. Uh, thank you, Zahid. Um, all right. Someone says, the next documentary must be you bringing Brian to Cannibal Corpse after you win. Okay, bet. Well, I went one and four last week. Uh, going backstage, since the band member hit you up, Brian biting his tongue around the anti-Jesus set. Yeah, guys, I, if you guys didn't miss this, or if you didn't see MK on, was it Monday? I, I don't even remember. Was it yesterday? I can't remember anymore. But uh, um, basically, the guitarist and songwriter from Cannibal Corpse hit me up because he saw me mention them on the weigh-in stream on Friday. He turned out to be a huge boxing fan. We kind of talked about it over email, and then he was like, yeah, next time we're in town, we'll get you backstage. You can meet the whole band the whole night. Like, like my dream come true, you know what I mean? Uh so it was really cool. It was really cool to see that. Um, and yes, if we can make that happen, I will. I'll take Brian. He'll hate it, but we'll go. All right. So thanks, dude. I appreciate that. Luke, the last time you spoke in such glowing terms about a performance that we did about Crawford was probably Connor and MSG, which stands out more. Crawford in every way. And dude, don't misunderstand me. Like what Connor did at MSG is, I mean, special. Please. That is, that was. That was a big boy moment among very big boy moments. But what Crawford did to me is without parallel for anything I've ever seen. And I was there in New York City that night. I'd never seen someone do something like that. Uh, what would 
what would you be most curious to discover in an imaginary world where you were granted full access to meetings and day-to-day operate? What would be, ooh, I mean, I don't know how much of it is really secret, you know, um, probably some of their discussions around how they perceive fighter pay internally, you know, cause they, they're smart guys. Like Lawrence Epstein went to Harvard. Like these are not, you know, these are not idiots. Like they're, they're bright guys. So how do they internalize some of these complaints and what I'd also love to know, like what from a pulling the levers of government, cause you know, going state to state and making sure commissions don't, show pay anymore they've, they've not been fully successful in that but they've made a lot of headway and in big states like florida where they have you know increasing amount of business they were able to make fighter pay removed from the public uh, record um i'd be curious to see what some of the thought process that goes into it you know i get the strategic element of it but i want to know like at its core what, what are they most concerned about what are they how do they perceive some of these things um you know, and then negotiations with ESPN, like what ESPN thinks about UFC. Like, does ESPN ever bring up to them, like, hey, you've got guys who say outrageous shit all the time. Like, you know, wh- how do you, how do they care at all? Or do they not? I mean, I don't know, some of these details about like the business side uh, and then the legislative side to me are actually the most interesting ones. Was it weird that Errol had no plan B during the fight and did the rematch clause negate the need for one in his mind? They gave Bud five plus years to prepare but showed no wrinkles even as it went poorly. I'm not sure I buy this, to be honest with you. Like when they say he had no plan B, sure he did. Like he's got a diverse, powerful jab and it's got, when I say diverse, I mean it's a lot of different locations and ways he typically sets it up and like weapons he puts behind it. He tried all of them. It didn't work. Now you're right. Did he try counterpunching? No, he's not a counterpuncher. He didn't have a gear that way. But like, okay, let me show you. Just, just, just let me show you here. I just, I'm just gonna like, look, look. Let's look at this, okay? Let me look at one thing here. Okay, so let me blow this up so we can see it here. All right, so let me show you. So this is his record. This is Errol Spence's record. Okay, so he loses to Bud Ugas, breaks his face. They could have stopped this fight in the eighth. It went to the tenth. He fucked Ugas up. Garcia, never in this contest. He was routed in this one. Sean Porter, this was an ugly fight. And this was, again, we're still talking like, you know, not prime, or not prime, but uh, not Spence at his best, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, but in any case, you know, he wins this one. He drops him in the 10th or 11th, whatever it was. Mikey Garcia got completely outclassed. Carlos Ocampo got knocked out in the first. Lamont Peterson got absolutely wrecked. Kel Brook had stiff resistance in this one and still got his face broken coming off the Triple G fight. Uh, Bundu couldn't make it six. Chris Algieri, that fight you can see on YouTube. Chris Algieri told me when he punched Spence, it felt like he was punching a guy with an exoskeleton. He couldn't believe he had no effect on him. That was a world champion he had fought in, the, in this contest. And then there's Barreda. Chris Van Eerden was the last southpaw he fought. That was on Spike TV. He demolished him, Phil LaGreco. And on and on and on again. The point I'm trying to make to you is you have a lot of different styles, different stances, different heights, different games. And he just broke all of them. He broke all of them. Except Bud. So it's like people didn't, he's like, didn't have a a game plan B. That's because his game plan A for 99% of the world is more than enough. That's the point. It's like, you know, yeah, he didn't counterpunch. He didn't, you know, he wasn't fighting on the back foot. Okay, sure. But, dude, you're talking about a guy whose, like, A-game is a terrifying force of nature. 
Well, the following ladies of combat sports, can you pick two guys? Please don't give any more because I have to go pick Abuela up from the Metro. So be easy on me here a little bit if you can, because uh, I'm not going to be able to get anything, get to everything in this chat if you do. So he says, can you pick two that you would BC would like to have on a room service diaries? Rose, Megan, Olivi, Joanna, Kate Abdo, and Zhang Wiley. I'm going to pick personally, I'll pick Kate Abdo and Zhang Wiley. Uh, okay, Rip Pee Wee Herman. Were you a fan? As a kid, everyone watched Pee Wee's Playhouse. Everyone watched Pee Wee's Playhouse. It was this, a, this bizarre yet kind of delightful imagination where the couch talked and like the walls had identity. It was just this weird, almost trippy kind of thing. There was no one really quite like him. Yeah. Uh, I sent you an early birthday gift that arrived at Malka Studios. It says it arrived Saturday. Has anyone notified you about it? No, they have not. But I have a call with them afterwards. I'll get to it. Uh, again, kind of answered this one already. Please don't leave any more donations for it. Uh, would you favor Paul Craig in a fight with Bone Nickel? No. I think they continue to book Bo versus Strikers and Wrestlers instead of Fighters with Elite Jiu-Jitsu. I think Bo probably wins that one, but I like some of the challenge that a guy, a, a good test is what I would say. Good test that Paul Craig is. Thoughts on Bradley Martin trolling fighters saying he can't beat them. Well, it's going to end with him getting his ass beat by one of them. It's just going to end there. He's too ingrained in like YouTube culture and like there's too much juice so to speak on the line for him to um to get out of this one like they're 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 gonna figure out a way uh okay all right thank you google chrome does the new england cartel need to diversify their boxing heavy game what does rob fonts i mean i think every team could benefit from uh you know cross training or otherwise expanding what they do but we're talking about the strength of calvin cater and the strength of rob font yeah adding other tools would be good but subtracting some of that identity i don't know that that's very useful uh who wins the matchups bud charlo okay bud and charlo i'll say bud shavkat and leon that's a tougher one i might say leon still aspinall jones probably jones sandhagen umar that's a tough one too coin flip i might say sandhagen that's i don't know yuri and alex probably yuri tank and shakur shakur Shakur, I think, is the only one who can beat him at 135. You mentioned before that UFC contracts prohibit class action lawsuits. Wouldn't that actually violate the fighter's statutory rights? Isn't that no one calling us out? Um, I don't know what is and is not enforceable in some of these considerations. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. And it's not all the contracts. It's just the new ones that require them not to participate in a class action lawsuit related to whatever the fighters are being suing them for. But whether, you know, how enforceable that is, I don't know. Like the people are like, oh, you know, you signed a non-disclosure agreement. Some of those are not going to be very enforceable. Uh, this is in a way's fifth weight class. He skipped one. Right. But he has belts in four. Right. He's won championships in four. Uh, which fight is more likely to happen? Musk, Zuck, no. McGregor, Chandler, maybe. Jones and Ganu, no. McGregor, Chandler. McGregor, Chandler. Thoughts on the death of Paul Rubens? Yeah, kind of addressed that one. Sorry to go through these very quickly, but I got to get moving. Do you think a super fight between Tank Davis and Noe Inouye is inevitable? No. Maybe in two years? Maybe, but not inevitable. And how far can this power go? You would think of all the guys who, you know, starting out at 118 or not, not even starting out, but like fighting at 112, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I'm sorry, I'm saying back in the early, uh, a guy who's basically fighting, the point I'm trying to make is the guy who's basically fighting Alec Pacquiao did in the, in the, in the teens. And then the power carries up to like, you're fighting Margarito. You just didn't think something like that was possible. Technically eight divisions, you know, is in a way going to be that, I don't know, but he might get pretty close. 
Uh, what is it about MMA that makes some fans have the superiority complex? Looking, to, I mean, the thing is like this: like, like M- there's a certain type of MMA fan, and I was this guy too. So like, far be it for me to be like I'm better than that. I'm not better than that. But they they have the wrong attitude. They have the attitude that like, oh, MMA is a more complete form of fighting, therefore it's better. Listen, if you like it better, and I do agree, it's obviously more complete. Then then cool, like no argument. But dude, boxing at the highest level uh, provides things that MMA can't, and vice versa. Like they don't do the same things, you know. There's a lot. There's some overlap. You know, big knockouts, big crowds, ring entrances, all that stuff. There's a lot of similarity, obviously. But in general, like what you get from Bud Crawford versus Errol Spence, you don't get that from, you know, what Habib was doing to guys. But what Habib was doing to guys is some of the most special shit I've ever seen. So like, it's not. They do different things. They just do different things. And that sounds like you're like, oh, you're avoiding a conflict between them. But I'm really not. Like I don't. You can't do all those martial arts and be insanely good at one of them at the same time. It's like it's not really possible. Even guys who were in jujitsu have to convert over. They don't. They don't keep that level of skill. It degrades a little bit. Boxing is the is the opposite of this. At the highest level, it's it's all in on something and it's absolutely fine tuned. It's hard to get fine tuning in MMA. You can get you can get a lot of it, and you can get this wide, incredible diversity of you know personalities and nations and skills and styles which boxing cannot do. It cannot do that. Um, and so you kind of like, for me, I like each for one, but like be like, oh, MMA is the answer to boxing. It's like, you know, I mean, if you if you want to look at it in some kind of like zero sum way, I guess you could say that, but I don't like, why would you need to do that? It doesn't even make sense. Um, all right. Do you think Drickus has decent cardio? Yeah. Oh, it's as high as Denver, not mentioned. Yeah. On Volk and doing the rugby... Do they, uh, what's your view on Volk and him doing rugby? They seem strong. Yeah, dude, anybody who does rugby at any kind of a high level is strong as shit. I didn't know that, by the way, about um, uh, Pretoria being at um, same height as Denver. That would explain a lot. You don't know nicotine is a great doc and a good eye opener for the benefits and demonization of nicotine itself. Okay, I will look into that. Thank you. Are aliens real? I mean, here's the thing, guys. I've told you before, like, you know, I'm not here to say no. You know, I'm I'm open to the idea. I am very open to the idea. But I don't I just have not seen the have you have you seen the evidence that you're like, okay, that is truly convincing. Like it's thorough in every way. I haven't seen that yet. I'm waiting for it. I'm ready. I'm not saying that's it's so crazy it could never happen. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm intrigued. You've got my you've got my ear, but now let me let me see it laid out. And those guys who are testifying apparently are a bunch of like frauds. So, you know, um, go Army. Also, go Navy. All right. Have you thought about exploring 10X Health, the thing that Dana White goes on to get healthy? Yeah. So the guy from the – who who is the nutritionist? The team behind Volkanovsky and uh, Izzy and all those guys. Um, what do they call themselves? Like TFS or whatever? The guys behind that, they have talked about the 10X guy relentlessly, and they claim he is full of shit. And I got to tell you – these dudes who are the nutritionists for Volk and the nutritionists for Izzy, they are strong adherents to science. Their results speak for themselves. And they go into detail about how that guy is a complete uh, fraud. So I'm more inclined to believe the guys who err on the side of caution and um, seem to be backed by the evidentiary weight that they are backed by. I'm going to listen to them. And last but not least, I feel like people are overlooking font this weekend. They might be. Corey is more well-rounded, okay, but if Rob can establish his high-volume boxing early, he can take it. Fair enough. Uh, you would be wrong to count out Rob Font. The only thing I would add is that um, 
Corey's ability to diminish the output of a guy like Rob is high, right? With stance changing, angle changing, different different looks, changing weapons, changing targets, changing ranges, changing feints. Like everything is a new look. It's just kind of hard to really get a rhythm going in a set thing when a guy is moving and changing all the different elements, the spatial elements and the setups in front of you. It's just hard to get a rhythm going on that guy. That's why a lot of guys have like a lower output against him, right? So for that reason, I would still favor Corey. But to your point, Rob Font, I think, is a man possessed coming red hot off that win over Adrian Yanez. And I'm looking forward to it. Now, Saturday is my birthday. So I'm taking the day off. I'm not going to be watching our oh, well, I might watch Paul and Diaz later, but I'm not going to cover the fights live. BC, we got you covered for that one, but um, I'll be sure to check them out for next week. All right. Well, that's it for me today. I appreciate you guys watching. And uh, yeah, that's it. So this will get up on podcast. We'll change the thumbnail on the whole nine yards. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, what I need you to do is stay frosty. Bum, bada, bum, bum.